Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. My name is Brian, if we haven't met yet, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Great to uh, be a part of this community that is redirecting ourselves week after week back to the beauty of Jesus and remembering who he is. And uh, that's what we want to do as we gather. And so uh, if I haven't met you yet, I would love to be able to do that. Hopefully that'll happen soon. Uh, But it's great to see all of you. Uh, We're going to dive into the scriptures here. And if you want to grab your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one with you. We would love for everybody to have a hard copy of the Word. And if you didn't when you came in, we would love for you to have one as you leave. We're working our way through this Acts series, and uh, there's lots of interesting stories along the way. This is uh, maybe one of the more interesting ones, um, particularly in the first half of the book. Um, It's not super complicated, but it is quite odd, as you'll see as we go, and so I'm looking forward to getting into it. Uh, Just to give you a bit of context as we jump into the story, uh, the deacons, uh, a couple weeks ago we read about the deacons being called and uh, the calling of these specific men into this role, and last week we read the story of one of the deacons, Stephen, who ultimately was killed for his testimony of faith. And it's at the death of Stephen that we transition to another deacon's story, the story of Philip. And that's going to take up all of Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at half of it this week and half of it next week as we uh, look at Philip's story and Philip's journey. Um, As we get into it, uh, let me throw out to you something that I think we can all agree with. There's a handful of things that I think we are all on the same page on, and I think this is one of them. Um, I think we can all agree that we live in an individualistic society, that, that we are uh, sometimes by choice and sometimes not by choice segmented from the people around us by the way that we live, by the way that we work, by the way that we interact. There's uh, a lot of individualism uh, within our society. That's a sociological phenomenon. If you just study, you can see some societies are more communal, some societies are more individualistic. God said in Gen- Genesis chapter 2, talking to Adam, that it is not good for man to be alone. That literally in our biological wiring, we're called together. But the 21st century West has pushed against that wiring, uh, maybe about as far as you can. That um, we may be hardwired biologically for community, but we are hardwired sociologically for isolation. There's a study, uh, a book published by a Harvard professor named Robert Putnam. You've heard me uh, reference him in the past. He wrote a book a little over 25 years now uh, ago called um, Bowling Alone. And with an avalanche of sociological data, what what Dr. Putnam said was that all uh, associations of choice are declining in the United States. And so that goes from the title of the book, Bowling Alone, to things like uh, community bowling leagues, to individual local churches. Membership in all associations of choice are dropping. We are seeing a rising individualism and a lessening sense of community. However, we are hardwired for connection. And so what happens is if we can't have the healthy communal connection that God has called us into, we will have some kind of connection. And sociologists now talk in the last 10 years especially about the rise of something called tribalism. 
Now, tribalism is really tricky because it's not really community. We're not connected because we know one another and are committed to one another. Our connection is ideological, meaning we're actually connected by what we're against rather than what we're for. So the connection that we have is based on the fact that you hate the same people that I hate and therefore we can be connected together. That, that if you haven't uh, figured it out, is not a deep, strong bond, right? But tribalism has risen as a replacement for community. Senator Ben Sass, in his book, Them, uh, Senator Sass is now uh, the president of the University of Florida, but when he was a senator and kind of observing some of the things that were happening in the U.S. Uh, society as well as the political arena, uh, Senator Sass says this, Lacking meaningful attachments, people are finding a perverse bond and at least sharing a common enemy. Right now, partisan tribalism is statistically higher than at any point since the Civil War. Why? It's certainly not because our political discussions are more important. It's because the local human relationships that anchored political talk have shriveled up. Alienated from one another, we're reduced to shrieking. Now, you may not agree with all of Senator Sass's book. There's certain aspects that I don't agree with. But I think we can all recognize if we are not relationally connected to one another, when we hit conflict, we end up shrieking. What's the answer that the church has, that the spirit has, that the scriptures have to tribalism? I believe Acts chapter 8 is going to show you a picture of what that looks like. That the Spirit of God will actually lead us away from tribalism into the reality of community. And in fact, you're going to see it from two different angles because it's not just that the Spirit of God is going to lead into a healthy community that crosses bounds that would create tribes, but also that there would be a pushback against those who would seek to partner with us at a tribal perspective so that we would be united under the, the, the lordship of Jesus himself. What does it mean for us to represent that level of community? That, I think, is part of the question that Acts chapter 8 is answering. So I want to ask you to listen. Melinda is going to come and read for us Acts chapter 8, 1 to 25. Listen to this narrative as it unfolds through that lens, and let's ask God to speak to our hearts. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thank you, Melinda. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you now speak to us as your servants, shape us and direct us by the truth of your word. May we be light and salt in the midst of a world that so desperately needs it. Would you guide us, Lord, that we would hear from you alone. May the words that I speak come from you. Those that come from my own strength, may they fall to the ground and be forgotten. But those that come from your spirit, God, may they remain and may we each, all of us, be shaped by the truth of your spirit. Beholding the glory of God, may we be increasingly transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, it's, it's a bit of an odd story, uh, not super complex. I want us to look at it through three different lenses. The first lens is the lens of what it means to be led by the Spirit. What happens when Philip is led by the Spirit and how does that impact the world around him? And then secondly, what are the marks of the Spirit? I think there are two predominant marks that we see both in this passage and throughout the book of Acts. Uh, there's lots of debate around that from a theological perspective, but I think that there's uh, some clarity in here uh, in this passage. And then finally, the conditions of the Spirit. 
What's it take to be filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit on our side? Who, who do we have to be? What are the conditions of our lives that are necessary that we would be filled with the Spirit? So led by the Spirit, marks of the Spirit, conditions of the Spirit. So we start in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, with Saul, not just approving of the execution, but uh, stepping into this role as persecutor. And so you see the church starting to spread out. The church is now starting to fulfill, actually, what Jesus called the church to do in his commission from Acts chapter 1. So if you remember, Acts 1, 8 said, uh, Jesus talking to his disciples said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And through eight chapters so far, the church has been really good at Jerusalem, has dipped a toe into Judea, and has completely ignored Samaria and the ends of the earth. They're just like totally out. And so the, the persecution comes, and what happens with the death of Stephen is that the church is forced to scatter into all of these different places. Now let me just say, this is the correct application of Romans 8.28. So some of you know Romans 8.28, you've heard it recited to you at various usually inappropriate times, right, where you hear people say, God is working together for good, all things to those who love him and are called together according to his purpose. And usually you're in the midst of suffering of some kind, there's something really bad that happened and somebody recites that to you and you have, as you listen to that and it washes over you, that deep overwhelming urge to punch someone in the face. You know that urge? You know that? You know where I'm at there? Yeah, yeah, because, because see, here's the thing, the, the promise of God. It's absolutely true, but in that moment, when you are personally, individually in the midst of raw suffering, you, it, it's not that God isn't working it together for his good. It's that your primary concern in that moment is not God's good, right? Let's just be honest. Like, that's where we are. And so, when that's being recited to you, you, you it, there's no landing spot for that in your heart. But here, there is, with the benefit of history and the benefit of being able to look back a little bit, we can see that the death of Stephen was not the will of God. The murder of Stephen was done at the hands of evil men, and yet God took that thing and redeemed it and made it for his good by scattering the church into all of these different places. One of those places the church is scattered is Philip going to Samaria, now, if you were reading as a good Jew this report that Luke has given to you and you see that anointed with the Spirit and full of the Spirit because uh, the deacons, all of them, have been called full of the Spirit, filled up with the Spirit, Philip now is going to Samaria, you would have been like, some, 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 excuse me? He's going where? Because Samaria is a, a distinct divide. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard that, but there's a, a, a real clear divide. I don't have time to unpack all of it, but, but let me simply say the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans is ethnic and religious and violent. All three of those things, ethnic and religious and violent. So you can think about the world around you and you can think about those people in uh, the world, people groups in the world that have an ethnic distinction, a religious distinction, and a violent distinction, and you can understand a bit of what was happening here between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Philip goes to Samaria. And what happens? Well, the Spirit of God shows up in some pretty profound ways. There's healing and there's, uh, th there's deliverances. There's this power of God that's unfolding around them. 
He's seeing all of this work of God that's happening as he goes into Samaria. And uh, Luke uses some really interesting words to record it. We talked about last week how Stephen was the first martyr, but that martyr at its root means witness. That uh, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will be my martus, my witnesses, as you go into all of these places. Simon, or, I'm sorry, uh, Stephen was doing that. That's not the word Luke uses for Philip. There's a, a word, a Greek word, that is translated gospel or good news, euangelion. And that word uh, is almost always a noun, and it declares the good news. As Brian said, we're going to be looking at the gospel as we move into the fall, and there's going to be, uh, we're going to really dig into the idea of what is the good news? What, what does it mean? Luke, talking about Philip, uses that word, euangelion, but he uses it in its verb form, euangelizo. And what he says is, Philip, when, when he's going, he's not going as a witness, a martus, he's going as a euangelizo, one who is taking and heralding the good news, the gospel, this, this new uh, kind of shift in reality. A Jew is taking the news of the kingdom of God to the Samaritans by heralding a truth of something that's unfolding among them. In fact, uh, it's fascinating. He uses that word over and over again, you and Galizo, and then he actually calls Philip by the title of evangelist. Evangelism is talked about throughout the New Testament. Philip is the only person given the title of evangelist. He takes the gospel, the good news, to Samaria, and he begins to see the gospel unfold. He's led by the Spirit into a place that there should have been a tribal distinction, but instead he brings reconciliation. Now let's unpack that a little bit because what happens when the Spirit comes? Well, I, I think there are two clear marks of the Spirit that we see here in Acts chapter 8. Um, the, you can argue that there are others. I would argue that these are the two that we see consistently, and all the other ones you see kind of in spotty ways. Uh, there's two things that we see happen consistently. And, and before I say what those two are, I want to say this. The, the clear thing that we see is that everybody who is anointed by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit comes upon them, they all know there's never a question. You, you, they're, they're not like looking around saying, do you think that was the Spirit or do you think they're just excited? Like, it's not that. They're, they're, there's really, there's a sense of this is clearly the Spirit. Why? Number one is power. When the Spirit works through someone, there is power. In, in this instance, we see Philip uh, with, with healings, with deliverance, with uh, works of reconciliation. It may not be that same fruit, but that same power is constantly at work when the Spirit of God is at work. So when there's reconciliation that's happening between people, when there is love being offered towards enemies, when there is grace, when there should be friction, those are all works of the Spirit. You see in Galatians chapter 5, this listing of the fruit of the Spirit. When we interact with one another in those ways, that's the power of the Spirit at work among us. And what's fascinating is Simon, who is uh, referred to as a magician, or depending on your translation, Simon the Great, um, there, there are, uh, there's this power that Simon has had, and then Philip comes to town, and Philip's power is so much greater, because it's the Holy Spirit power, than Simon's power. Simon's like, ooh, I went in on that, right? Like, he sees it, and he's like, this is way cooler than what I got. And so what, what's recorded for us is that all these Samaritans confessed Jesus and were baptized, and Simon confessed Jesus and was baptized, 
and he kind of attached himself to Philip. He started kind of following Philip around. He wants to be where the power is, right? So you see the first mark of power, and the second mark that is always present with the Spirit is the mark of unity. God does something between people when his spirit is present. And this is a really uh, unique way that he does this. Let me just read for you, uh, starting in verse, uh, verse 14. It says, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now listen to verse 16. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's weird. Um, Professor Howard Marshall says this is the most extraordinary verse in the entire book of Acts. And I would tend to agree with him. Because what you see here is something you don't see, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the scriptures and anywhere else throughout history, which is that in Acts chapter 2, What's shown is that as God comes and as people are converted, as people begin to follow Jesus, they immediately receive the gift of the Spirit, that God's Spirit comes into them. That doesn't mean there's not a laying on of hands where there's additional fillings. It doesn't mean that sometimes their hands aren't laid on them as they're converted and they're filled with the Spirit. Both of those things happen in the book of Acts. But what you only see at this place in the book of Acts is that they were converted, they, they believed Jesus and were baptized into Jesus' name, and yet they didn't have the Spirit. What's going on? Well, there's some um, more kind of theological implications that I'm going to deal with in the podcast this week, so if you're hoping for deeper theology, you're going to have to wait for the podcast for that one. Um, but, but I think there's something that we can just at a summary level say is unity. Remember, these are the Samaritans. These are the hated Samaritans. And they've confessed Jesus. And they've been baptized into Jesus' name. And now Peter and John, representing the church at Jerusalem, the Jewish people, come and they, through the laying on of hands, pray for the Samaritan Christians and the Spirit comes to them. It's the only time that we have this recorded in, the, in scriptural history. Why? Michael Green, in his book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit, says it really well. He says that the delay is a divine veto on schism. So that word just means a, a, a violent divide. A divine veto on schism in the infant church. A schism which could have slipped almost unnoticed into the Christian fellowship as converts from the two sides of the, quote, Samaritan curtain, unquote, found Christ without finding each other, that would have been the denial of the one baptism and all it stood for. What Green is saying, and I would tend to agree, is that the, the, the lordship of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, recognizes that the Samaritan church that's growing and this Jewish church that's growing are going to always and naturally be apart from one another because they just plain don't like each other, right? Like, these are, uh, th- this is what the therapists would call a complex relationship, right? Like, this is, this is like, this is a serious divide. And so it's very natural that the Jerusalem church and the Samaritan church are never going to cross paths with one another. So the Holy Spirit does this very odd thing which is not manifest himself, not be poured out on these brand new Christians 
until the leadership of the church in Jerusalem comes and prays for them. This sense of unity is something that the Spirit is always doing. Sometimes it's through miraculous work like this, an odd, um, out of sync with the way that God typically works. Sometimes it's simply by recognizing that when we are all pursuing after him, we're far less concerned about the things that divide us. Sometimes it's because God draws together people who don't look like one another or don't act like one another or don't believe like one another and we get unified around not that stuff but around him. And as we get unified around him, we find, oh, look, we're all kind of moving the same direction. This is actually good and healthy as it should be. The Spirit of God always comes in power and creates unity. But if you notice, there's a bit of an exception here. Why is it that, that Simon, who was in Samaria, when all the other Samaritans believed and were baptized, it says that Simon also believed and was baptized? And yet it seems like he's kind of standing on the side here. All the Samaritans are being prayed for by Peter and John. They lay on the hands and the spirit comes and Simon's standing there is going, ooh, that's cool, right? Like it's, he's completely outside the loop. Like why is it that the spirit doesn't fall on Simon? All the rest of them have the spirit fall on them. What happened to Simon? What's going on with him? Simon believed and was baptized. But the Bible makes distinction between two different kinds of belief. In fact, uh, James in his epistle talks about w- what he calls a demonic belief. Uh, uh, so, so let me describe it this way. There, there's two different kinds of believing. I could believe very deep in my heart that there's alien life on Mars. I'm just waiting for the day when they're going to make contact. It's coming. You can watch all the UFO stuff. You understand. It's on its way here. I can believe very deeply in my heart. Not you looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm not saying it's true. I'm using an example, people. Come on. I, I, I could believe that that's true. Deep in my heart, I could believe that that's true. That, that's different than me believing that coffee helps me wake up in the morning. Like, I also believe that's true. And the, the alien life on Mars thing has like literally no impact on the rest of my life. I'm not doing anything about it. But the coffee waking me up in the morning my first hour or two or four are completely organized around that truth, right? Like, I, I believe that in a very different kind of way. See, what James says is, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Good. So do the demons, and they shudder. Belief that doesn't organize my life, that doesn't change the way that I live, isn't the same thing as a belief that surrenders myself to that truth. Simon believes, but Simon believes as he stands back in a way that is not complete surrender. And we know that because what Simon says is, as the Spirit falls upon the Samaritans, his response is, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You notice he does not say, can you pray for me so I have the Holy Spirit too? Can you pray for me that I would be able to serve Jesus and follow him all the days of my life? No, he says, I want the power, right? Like, that's cool. That thing you did, that's cool. I want to do that. And and the response to that is this strong chastisement from Peter that says, may your silver perish with you. Like, you you need need to turn. You need to repent. And interestingly, even in the midst of this, Peter gives him an opportunity to turn back again. This is not a a, a condemnation categorically. 
This is saying where you're at is bad, turn. You, you have an opportunity right now to change. Does he? Well, Luke seems not to be interested in the answer to that question and doesn't think you and I need to be either. He's not going to tell us. But he does give us a clue. In verse 24, Simon's response is, pray for me to the Lord so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That's different than, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm turning and I'm turning back to the Lord. This is very different than pray for me that I would be able to follow Jesus with everything that I had. What Simon says is, pray that those consequences don't hit me. It's probably not the saving prayer that needs to come ultimately. There's a distinction between belief that highlights the gift. You know, um, Luke in uh, the mouth of Peter makes it clear that the Spirit is a gift. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. It's the gift that's given. But the point is not the gift. The point is the giver of the gift. And so for so many of us, we get that confused. We, we wrestle with, on a day-to-day-to-day basis, I want the things of God more than I want God. I, I want the benefits that come from God more than I want God. And it's very subtle, but it's this wrestling that we have because we believe that if I do certain things right, if I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray the prayers and I get connected in the community and I'm faithful and do the things that God calls me to do, I'll have a good life. He'll, he'll give me the spouse that I want. He'll give me the family that I want. He'll, uh, he'll give me the job that I need. He'll give me the blessings in the world around me. He'll help me to break this addiction that I have. He'll help me to live a different kinds of life. All of which can be really, really good things. But they're not the same as the giver. And that was his problem. Simon was far more concerned about the gift than he was about the God who was giving the gift. I want to give you an Old Testament illustration as we wrap up. I think it's a helpful one for me at least, to get a sense of what it looks like to follow God in that way. Uh, This is in Joshua chapter 5. In Joshua 5, in the book of Joshua, Moses has just died. Uh, The command of Israel has been given over to Joshua. Joshua is leading them towards the promised land, towards the conquest of the promised land. And at the end of Joshua chapter 5, there's these two verses that are fascinating. It says this, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. This is verse uh, 13. And looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. That's not the question, right? Like, (laughs) he had to be like, "Uh, Excuse me? Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? This is an A-B question, right? It's a very simple question. Are you on our side? Are you on the other side? What's the answer? No. What's he say? But I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua, and you can understand why, as he gets ready to move into what is the, the conquest of Canaan and the judgment of God against all of these different nations that God is leading towards. He sees the world through this black and white, us and them, you might say, tribal lens. Are you on our team? Are you on the other team? Are, are you for our people or are you for those people? And what's the answer? 
No. I'm for me. God is for God. He's not for you and your team. And he's not for your gift that you long for or your thing that you want to have. He's for himself, his own glory, his goodness. The problem that we run into is that there is a dramatic distinction between intellectual belief and complete submission. Simon saw God as a divine vending machine. If I just say the right thing and follow the right pattern, I'll get the gift I want. Which we can look back at and see as a problem. But it's also the way most of us live. I did my devotions this morning. Why did I get a flat tire on the way to work? That shouldn't happen like that. I, I, I've been praying faithfully. Why isn't God blessing me? I, I've been doing all of the stuff and my life still doesn't feel good. You know one of the fastest ways to walk away from Jesus? Hold him to a promise that he never made. And that's the problem that most of us have. He's, he's, uh, he, he's fulfilling his promise, which is to be with us, not to bless you because you did your devotions. When we come to this condition of the Spirit, I think what's happening in Acts chapter 8 is Luke is reminding us that we can be filled when we're not filled with ourselves. We have to be empty in order to be filled. It's a really simple principle. And so there's a call back to us of saying, not a condemnation, not a, a guilt, beat myself up, not a am I really saved, but a sense of, am I trying to do this in my strength, in my will? Do I desire my stuff? Or am I willing to follow the God of the universe who may have a very different plan for my life than I have? Who may be calling me in a very different direction than I think he is? Are you for us or are you for them? Nope, I'm for me. God is for his own glory, and we're invited into that beauty. I'm going to take a couple moments just to pray over us. The, the beauty of the, the work of the Spirit is that God comes and fills us, not just that first time, that's what we're seeing in Acts chapter 8, but in an ongoing way. Um, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we should keep on being filled with the Spirit. And it's, it's different than that first time, that first time that we're filled with the Spirit for the very first time as we uh, commit our lives to Jesus. But in an ongoing way, he's coming and he's empowering us and anointing us and giving us what we need to be able to walk with him, to be able to glorify him. And so it's a great question for us to ask. Am I fully devoted? Am I undivided? A am I submitted to where he's taking me? In the book of Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking the centrality of Jesus, what it means to be totally submitted to him, what it means to be people who are following him for his glory and his purposes. And at the end of Romans chapter 11, having built this incredible case, there's this overflow of the glory of God. And I want to speak that over us as we go from here, that we would stay focused on who he is and what he's doing. So receive these words. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory 
forever and ever. Amen. As you go from here, go in the grace and peace of Jesus. Have a great week. Thanks for being here. Amen.